Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. We're in Genesis chapter 37. I'm not going to have you stand because I'm going to read virtually the entire um, chapter. That'll take till about 1.30. Um, and, uh, and, and then I'll, I'll preach till 4.30 and, and we'll call it a day. Um, all right. Um, we, uh, one thing we'll learn very quickly in this passage is that our family, this is the family of faith, uh, the Bible's uh, got a story, right? Here's the Bible's storyline. God made the world, it was awesome. God made us, we screwed it up. God doesn't abandon the world, God intervenes. He intervenes through a family. Um, starts with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob. And now we're reading about Jacob's 11th child. His name is Joseph, okay? That's where we are in the story. So if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your family. It's a really screwed up family. Of course, you're in it, right? So here we go. It says in Genesis chapter 37, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So, by the way, um, Jacob has 12 children, 12 sons. He has more children than he has 12 sons. And he has, four, uh, he has six sons with Leah. And he has four sons with the concubines, uh, Leah and um, Rachel's uh, maids. And then he has um, two sons with Rachel, his beloved. Uh, and one is um, Joseph and the other is Benjamin, and she dies in uh, childbirth with Benjamin, okay? So um, we read that this 11th child, but uh, the child with his beloved Rachel, um, Joseph of Israel, now Jacob's name has been changed to Israel, so the Bible will call him Jacob, the Bible will call him Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are, Basically, are you kidding me? Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And Joseph dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, I've dreamed the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, even his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the saying in mind. So this is one chunk of this passage, kind of deals with Joseph and his dreams. And now we get to the second uh, part of the passage. 
that deals with his brothers. Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the flock at Shechem. I'm going to send you to them, right? So he said to them, go now see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him um, from the valley of Hebron to Shechem and a man found Joseph wandering in the fields and the man said, what are you looking for? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away. I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them at Dothan. So they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Now Reuben desired to rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. Well, they listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And these traders took Joseph to Egypt. Now when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and says, the boy is gone and, and where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in the blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, thus we have found, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, saying, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Would you pray with me? I'm gonna ask you to pray. I ask you to pray this prayer if you're willing. God, I'm not very teachable. My heart is stubborn and it's often not soft. But I invite you to teach me this morning. So Lord, I come as your student. Speak to me. Will you pray that prayer? You might not be a follower of Jesus. You might just be here to be with your family today. 
You might be a teenager, not sure you buy your parents' um, faith. But I invite you, I dare you to pray that prayer because after all, if there is a God, wouldn't you want to know him? I, I invite you to pray, God, if you're there, if you're real, speak to me. So, Lord, hear the prayers of your people, we pray. Amen. Well, here's the deal. Got two questions this morning. Are you headed to the feast? Are you in the family? And are you headed to the feast? Publix creates these awesome Thanksgiving and Christmas commercials. Here was one of them from just a couple years ago. Are you in the family? Are you headed to the feast? That's my job this morning to invite you, give you an invitation to the feast. That's the great thing about um, Christmas. It, it, has a, it has a forward motion to it. It often starts early in December with um, parades. Uh, maybe there's a public uh, tree lighting in a lot of towns. Houses start to be decorated. Um, kitchens are filled with good smells. People begin to bake. Family traditions, you know, families watch um, Grinch and Elf and, and whatever uh, movies their family enjoys watching every December. Lots of time and money are spent on Amazon. Um, uh, parties begin to take place, services of lessons and carols and concerts. Uh, all, all moving towards Christmas. Christmas Eve worship um, blends into Christmas Day. We're not there yet. We're not sort of at the culmination of the whole celebration um, yet. Children, when you grow up, think the culmination of all of this activity is what? Presents. <laughs> Christmas morning. We have a, a huge job uh, to divest them of that. The real uh, end of all of this, it's all moving towards what? Family together, feasting together. Grandparents, parents, little children, infant in arms, sharing family stories, sharing wealth, sharing you know, um, um, uh, you know, family history, sharing warmth um, together. The family around the table at the feast. That's where it's all going. That's where it's all intended to go. That, that those, those what, what are potentially, before we had political rancor, those blissful moments uh, around the Christmas table at the feast. Well, this is the motion of the Bible. 
the Bible's moving too. God is building a family, and he's moving his family towards the great day. And when you get to the end of the Bible, all of this motion in the Bible that starts all the way back with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and they were kicked out of the garden. And then God chooses this um, idolatrous man out, right out of, plucks him right out of this idolatrous culture named Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jay. All of this motion is leading where in the Bible? All the way when you get to the end. What is at the end of the story? It's a feast. God's family has been assembled. God's family's together. They're at the feast. At many a funeral in this church, um, when I'm officiating, I, I like to come down at the end. We're done. We've talked. We've said our words. We've sung. We've cried. We've prayed. It's time to say goodbye. Sometimes there's a casket here. And, uh, and if there is, I'll come down at the end and, and sort of collectively speak for the crowd there. We're saying goodbye to one we love, one that mattered um, to us. And the last words I'll say is, um, good night. Good night, brother. Good night, sister. We'll see you in the morning. We'll see you at the great feast. We'll see you at the table where we'll all be gathered together. You ever wonder why we eat a lot as a church? You ever wonder why there's a lot of donuts around here and all these other events? Well, we're practicing. We're practicing. That's the whole point. We're actually, that's, that, that is what it means. Families eat together. Families enjoy together. Families, that's where it's all going. That's the motion. What did Jesus do the last night on earth, the last time he had with his disciples? What did they do? They had a feast. They gathered for the Passover feast. They ate together. And he said to them, we're gonna do this again. And until I come back, you do it again and again and again and again and again. So that's the aim. It's to get you in the family. It's to get you at the feasts. This whole family thing didn't just start with you. It started a long time ago, thousands of years ago. The Bible is a family story. So I have two questions. Are you in the family? And are you headed to the feast? Ready? Got a sermon outline? Let's talk about this family. The first thing we have to know, note about this family is they're loony, right? <laughs> this family is one motley crew. Uh, this family is messed up. Joseph, uh, when, when we start chapter 37, is um, 17 years old. He's about a boy, right? He has 11 brothers. He's watching the flocks with the brothers who were born to, the, to his father's concubines. Now that's interesting. He's not watching, he's not working with any of Leah's offspring. Um, perhaps because it would be too dangerous for him to be with them. Um, and, uh, and yet even with these four, Brothers, the Bible tells us that when uh, they come in from the fields, he goes to his father and he rats out uh, his brothers. Uh, he delivers a bad report, right? He's an insider. He's got inside access to his father, the family boss. And he tells the boss, these other guys, whatever he tells them, the implication of the Bible is it's not true. It's, uh, it's, it's embellished, it's scandalized, um, uh, it's fabricated. Um, running down his brothers. Now, what do we learn right away in this passage is that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, right? Only son by Rachel other than Benjamin. Uh, he loves 
Joseph, and as an expression of that, he made for his son what? He had made for his son what? A garment, a robe, and that robe was a robe of? No, no. Uh, <laughs> we like that. They made a great play about that joke of Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, but uh, actually, but scholars don't really know quite how to interpret this word. The only other place it appears in the Bible is um, a robe that was made for a princess. So it is a royal um, robe. It may have had many hues because the idea is it was of a fabric that was exquisite uh, and expensive. And the robe, some of the interpretations actually said it was a robe with long sleeves. Not quite as flashy as many colors, but it was a robe. And here's the real point of the robe. This garment, this special sort of ostentatious um, a declaration of, of clothing was meant to declare that Joseph was the head of the family. Not just that he got a better present at Christmas than any of the other kids. That's not what's happening here. It's an indication that his father has chosen him to be the heir, to be the head, to be the family leader, running against all, all the laws of primogeniture that were so embellished in those cultures. That's what Jacob decides. Joseph, my 11th child, my 11th son, is elevated over all the others. Now, um, how did the brothers feel about that? When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than them, they hated him. They couldn't even speak peacefully to him. So if you're a Jewish uh, and you're passing by someone else who is Jewish, what would you say to them as a kind greeting? Shalom, right? Peace, shalom. Well, they couldn't even give the shalom uh, to their brother. They despised him. They couldn't speak um, to him. Well, then Joseph um, tells his brothers that he has um, uh, had a dream. Uh, his first dream was an agricultural kind of dream. There's, they're working in the fields. They're bundling up uh, uh, sheaves. And, um, and, and there's, there's 12 sheaves. And one of them is taller than the others, and all the other 11 bow down uh, to him. And uh, the brothers, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and what did we have? I'm not sure we have the scripture about that. His brother said, you're going to reign over us? A 17-year-old twerp? Um, you're you're going to rule over us? They hated him even more for his dreams and his words. They hated him. They hated him. They hated him. If that wasn't enough, Joseph has another dream. This is a celestial dream. The sun and moon and 12 stars, but 11 of the stars and the sun and the moon all bow down to one star. Guess who that is? Joseph. And Joseph not only has these dreams, he takes utmost delight in sharing this um, with the entire family. Um, proud and, uh, and arrogant. And even his father rebukes him at this. I mean, you, you're, you says to Joseph, your brothers, your mom, me, really? You know, this is, this is over the top. Stop it, right? Um, so we have to say right away, what about this family? Um, Jacob is a foolish father. Remember Jacob was resentful because his father favored Esau over him? Um, and yet having experienced that very thing, he favors Joseph over the rest. He repeats the failures of his own father. And with that coat, you know, he publicly elevates this brat of a son over his brothers. He creates this family rancor. 
Now, that's Jacob. That's the head of the family. Joseph is immature. He's boastful. He's spoiled. He's arrogant, right? He's a jerk. And uh, then we have the brothers who are jealous and resentful, so resentful that they can't even acknowledge their brother, and in fact, they um, intend to kill him. Ah, what a happy family. What a Christmas would be like in this group. Um, All gathered around the table at the feast. Um, You know, interesting enough, this is our family. This is our family. Um, and, And that may be surprised you because you might think, isn't it great to be in the family of these great people? You know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, these great heroes of the faith, you know? Like Abraham, who twice tried to give his wife sexually to Pharaoh to save his own skin. That's our Abraham, right? This is our family. Um, And we have to face the fact that our family isn't uh, what we thought it was. A friend of mine told me that uh, um, a pastor who had a, a woman who worked on his team at his church decided to give her family a gift at Christmas um, they had those DNA tests a couple years ago. I'm still not sure out there, 23andMe, where you could collect a, a sample or something from people in your family, send it off, and it would come back with all this information about your entire family tree and whether you were from Bulgaria or Ireland or all this stuff, and it would tell you about your parents and grandparents and all that. And uh, so she got it all done surreptitiously. She didn't tell her parents or anything. She just handed them the envelopes on Christmas Eve. It was going to be a Christmas morning. It's going to be so much fun to discover their family history. And they opened them up and discovered that her father was not her father. Uh, it was not a happy Christmas in, uh, in that household. Sometimes you have to face the facts that your family was not what you thought it was. Now, here's the problem. Um, I mean, here's the point of this, really, is this is a family that you don't qualify for by virtue, right? This is a family you get into by grace, Because the more you get to know this family, that if you're a Christian, you're in, you know this family is filled with rogues. You know this um, family is is filled with um, uh, broken people. Christianity is not a religion. Religion says you keep the rules. You follow the rules and you be virtuous and God loves you. Every religion in the world says that. Every religion in the world says there is a divine, there is a deity. It's up to you. Uh, to please that deity with your sacrifices, with your life, with your pilgrimages. It's up to you. You keep the rules. You keep the fast days. You do what you're told. And if you do it well enough, then you'll have his favor. That's not Christianity. Religion says be virtuous and God loves you. That's how you get to the feast. Matter of fact, I just read this morning, the guy said he went to a funeral this weekend in which um, the pastor at the funeral said, this person lived a virtuous life. This person did enough good deeds that we can be confident of their eternal destiny. That's religion. That's enslavement. That's living a life of fear and insecurity because how do you know if you've done enough good, right? I mean, the worst thing that could ever happen is to be in the line and to go into heaven and Mother Teresa is ahead of you. And the angel says to Mother Teresa, I'm sorry, you didn't do enough. Your $10 you threw on the plate every week isn't probably going to make a big impression, right? 
Christianity isn't religion. This isn't a good family. This isn't a family of the virtuous. God loves dysfunctional, broken people. Here it is. It's right here in the Bible. It's right in Genesis chapter 37. This is the family of God. This is the church of God. Who would want to join, right? Um, just think of the genealogy of Jesus. You read in, the, in uh, the New Testament, it gives the genealogy of Jesus. There's four women mentioned. Tamar, right? Tamar had sexual relations with her father-in-law to get uh, impregnated. Um, then we have Ruth. Ruth's from an uh, idol-worshiping people. She was from Moab. Then we have um, Rahab. She's a prostitute, um, a Canaanite um, pagan prostitute. And then we have Bathsheba, who um, hooks up sexually with um, uh, David the king, uh, David ultimately killing her husband. Um, it's like a 2020 episode, isn't it? Um, this is God's family. This is God's, th these are the mothers of Jesus. So when I say I got to get you in the family, this is the family. Um, Jesus actually walks uh, into, um, just days before he's executed, he walks into Jericho and uh, as he's coming to Jericho, crowds are there. They've heard of him. Um, they're lining the streets so much so that there's this one um, short guy who gets in a tree. And uh, his name is Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector, which means that he's the most hated man in town because he's a collaborator. Remember when World War II was over? Remember what they did to the people who collaborated with the Germans in the Netherlands and in, in other occupied countries in France? The, the collaborators, the people who help the enemy. So Zacchaeus helps the enemy, he helps the Romans. He, he collects money for the Romans. Not only that, he pads his own pocket. He steals from the people. He uses his position of authority. Everybody hates this guy. He's the most hated guy in town. And when Jesus walks into town, he stops at that tree, he points up at the most hated guy in town and says, I'm going to lunch with you today. And you know what the crowd did? They were enraged. Because we want religion. We don't want grace. We think we're better than other people. We think this system will work out good for us. In God's family, there's Zacchaeus in his family. I remember thinking the most hated person in Citrus County was named John Cooey. John Cooey took a little girl out of her um, home and, and ended her life in the most brutal, horrible um, fashion. They arrested him. And, well, suppose he was still in jail. He's not still living. Uh, suppose he was here. Suppose he was in our county jail. Suppose Jesus came to Citrus County and all the poobahs and all the important people in our county and, and, and my goodness, Seven Rivers Church people were all there. And Jesus said, well, I'm not really going to do lunch with you. I'm going over to the jail. I'm doing lunch with John Cooey. How would Citrus County have felt like that, about that? The most vile person in our entire community. That's how they felt when Jesus went with Zacchaeus. The most vile person in our whole community. Stolen money from all of us. Collaborates with the enemy. That same enemy that's raped our wives. That's who Jesus goes to lunch with. So really, Saul. Who wrote the New Testament? Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who murdered who? Christians. I saw a picture one time, uh, 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 an idealized idea of Saul showing up in heaven and, and, and 
all the people that he killed welcoming him. Nobody more hated by the early church than Saul of Tarsus. But he's in the, now he's in the family. Do you know the leader of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Mitsuo Fuchida, is in the family? Do you know he was converted and became a Christian? The most vile attack on America. We just had Pearl Harbor Day, didn't we, a week or so ago. The one who led that aerial attack, he's in the family. Do you get the point? Get the point. This is a family of grace. Um, there are a lot of cousin Eddies in God's family, right? <laughs> um, it's funny, people say, you know, I went to this church, I tried to go to this church, people weren't nice, they were stuck up, they were unkind, blah, 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 blah. And I want to think, well, read the book. I mean, why did you expect anything different? <laughs> Look at who this family's made of. And by the way, why don't you join? You'll kind of be just like everyone else, you know? Some people say, I could never be a Christian. I can't keep the role. I'm just not good enough. Well, who is? Nobody's good enough. Nobody's kept the rules except for one person. That's why Jesus came. He came to keep the rules. He came to do what we could not do. He saves us. He didn't come to tell us how to save ourselves. He came to be our savior, to accomplish what we couldn't accomplish and keep every law of God, right? So, you know, 34 years ago, a guy walked in this church, and uh, I only know this because he wrote me a letter many years later. Uh, he only came to this church four times, and in the letter, uh, he said this, in December of 1988, I walked in Seven Rivers Church because I had an intimate relations with another man. I was living as a homosexual. This other man I discovered had AIDS, and I said, look where this life I'm living has brought me. Now I'm going to die. And I walked into Seven Rivers Church. I hadn't darkened the doors of a church in years. But I came in that place and I listened to the sermon. And you said that Jesus is not coming back as a helpless little baby. He's not coming back in the cute way he's depicted on Christmas cards. He's coming back as a mighty warrior. He's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you asked, are you ready to meet him? I sat there and I said, no, I'm not ready. And I went home and I fell on my knees and I invited Jesus Christ to be my Lord. Three weeks later, my job got transferred out of town. I ended up back in New York. I was reconciled with my father who was a great part of uh, my gender confusion. I got involved in a church. I met uh, my wife there. I have two children now. I've gone to seminary. I'm the head of the married couples class in my church. I've been hired by the seminary. I'm now in charge of their distance learning program um, all over, uh, which blesses people all over the world. God has a, God has a heart for the broken. Um, and you know, that's my job. My job is to tell you there's a seat at the feast with your name on it. No matter how broken you are, no matter how far from God you are, because there aren't good people. There's just broken people. There's broken people who have run to Jesus and there's broken people who are so stubborn they won't. And you know what my job is as a pastor? It's really very simple. Get you in the family and get you to the feast. 
Do you know what my job as a father is? It's really very simple. Get my children in the family and get them to the feast. Do you know what my job as a grandfather is? It's really very simple. To the best I'm able, get my grandchildren in the family and get them to the feast. Right? So I ask you this morning, are you in the family? Because you're eligible. You're rotten enough. You'll fit right in. Are you in this family? Are you headed to the feast? Because nothing else matters. Now second, what about this family? One thing we learn about this family is it has, has a father, a father who's always at work. So what do we read? The first past part of this passage deals with Joseph. Now we're gonna talk about these brothers. Joseph's um, brothers are out with the flock. Isn't that interesting? All the brothers are out tending sheep, but who? Daddy's little favorite, right? Um, and, uh, and so Jacob calls him in and says, I got to get a report on these guys and the flocks, and I got to know how it's going. And he sends Joseph out um, to bring back a report. Joseph uh, goes to where um, Shechem, where they thought the, uh, they would be, and they weren't. And he finds a man there, and the man says, I saw them. I saw that group, and I overheard uh, they were headed to Dothan. And so Joseph heads to Dothan, and, uh, and the brothers see him coming from afar. How do they see him? How do they see him so far away? Well, he's wearing his coat. Who goes out and wears this royal robe while they're out in the desert, out traveling, out uh, uh, finding the brothers, out in the sheep, out in the field? Who wears this? Well, Joseph does, you know, his royal robe. And, um, and so the brothers, you know, their, their, their hatred is only inflamed. Here comes the dreamer in his coat. And uh, they decide to kill him, and they throw him in into a cistern. Now, Reuben is the firstborn. And the firstborn's responsible for all of uh, his brothers. He doesn't like this. Uh, and so he says, well, let's go and kill him. Let's just throw him in a pit. Um, and, uh, and we'll leave him there to die, as if that's a real improvement on uh, uh, the treatment. Um, but, but Reuben intends to, to very, uh, in a stealthy way, go back around behind his brothers and rescue Joseph. But the Bible says that when Joseph comes, they set on him with violence. Look at what it says in verse um, 23. They stripped him of his robe. Now, the, 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 the motion, the action, the intensity of this would be like pulling the skin off of a dead animal. I mean, they, they, um, they, they defrocked him of this hated vestiture. They stripped him. They pulled his clothing off of him. They left, they left him naked and exposed. And then it says they threw him in the pit here, but that, again, doesn't capture the violence of this, the harshness. They cast him, is a better word, into the pit. Um, and then what did they do next? Anybody notice in the passage, what did they do next? They ate lunch. They had lunch together. Um, very callous, right? Um, and uh, a caravan of traders is passing by, and so Judah... One of the brothers says, hey, I got a better idea. If we kill him, then we got his blood on our hands. It doesn't feel good. Maybe this. Why don't we do this? Why don't we sell him? We don't get his blood on our hands and we get money out of it. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Joseph is taken to um, uh, Egypt by the um, traders. Uh, 
So imagine this all from Joseph's perspective. He's secure in his father's love, and now he's been brutalized by his brothers. He's sold as a slave. He's headed to a land far from home. His dreams are um, dashed. We learn later in Genesis verse 40, uh, chapter 42 that the brothers said, in truth we are guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. He begged us. And we did not listen. Now you might be perplexed by this passage, perhaps even more likely by your own life. I mean, where is God? This passage, God is silent. He says nothing, he's not mentioned, he doesn't appear. I mean, we could have had God right there at the pit saying, thou shalt not throw your brother in a pit. Thou shalt not strip your brother of his clothing, cast him into a pit. Thou shalt not kill your brother. Thou shalt not even conspire to kill your brother. Thus saith the Lord. None of that. None of that. Now, I suppose most of us have experienced the pit. Some, the pit, exceedingly deep. You felt that God is absent in your life. Could have been the death of your spouse. Cancer. Of a child who's addicted and you'd spend any amount of money to get them to rehab, any amount of money, anything to intervene and perhaps you did all that and they're still addicted and it's only worse and the hour's growing late for them ever to be saved. You're in the pit. You lose your job, maybe you lose it suddenly. Your spouse leaves you, you're crushed and in the midst of it you say, where is God? But here's what I want us to learn. Here's what Christians need to learn. Here's what so many Christians seem not to get and and they forfeit the comfort that could be theirs is that God is often silent, but he is never absent. He is always at work. Often silent, but never absent. It's called providence. Our doctrine states it like this, and you're gonna read this together with me. Let's do it together. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Got it? God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, all actions, all things by his providence. What are we saying? God runs the world. This is my father's world. It's his world. He runs it. He runs everything, down to the smallest detail. The Bible says the cast of the dice is not a matter of of chance. My church growing up, they didn't even have potluck suppers. They had pot providence suppers. There's no such thing as luck, right? God is in control. He uses everything good, bad, evil, 9-11, genocide, miscarriage to assemble his family and get them to the feast. That's the point. Joseph had a plan. God had a plan for Joseph's life. What was the plan? God gave him the dreams. What were the dreams? Joseph is prominent, right? 
Everybody is going to come to Joseph and bow down before him. And that's exactly the plan that's taking place. We haven't got there yet in the story. But to save his family uh, from famine, to save um, Egypt, to save the messianic line, God has Joseph going to Egypt, where Joseph will rise to prominence, right? And he will save all of Egypt by his leadership. He will save them from starvation. His family will migrate to Egypt where they will be saved. The messianic line will be saved. Everything that God is doing is to save his family, which means that if Joseph had not been thrown in the pit, had not been beaten, had not been sold into slavery, that you would go to hell. Everything God does that I read has to do with saving you. Because if the messianic line dies there, it dies. This all has to do, the whole Bible has to do with getting you to the feast. And God intervenes and God runs the world and God's always up um, to good. If Joseph doesn't go to Egypt, everyone dies. Don't you see it in this passage? Jacob just happens to send Joseph out to find his brothers. Jacob um, can't find them, but a man just happens to be there. And this man just happened to overhear where they were. And when he finds them, um, Reuben intervenes so that they, he just happens to be thrown into a pit and not killed um, immediately. And then, um, and then Judah comes up with a better plan where um, he's taken out of the pit and sold to the uh, Midianite traders. That just happened to come to Judah's mind, right? Um, all of these things just happened, um, and then he just happened, those traders just happened to be passing by, and they just happened to be on their way uh, to Egypt. Is that how the story goes? Nothing just happened. God orchestrated it all. Do you know that later in this um, uh, book of Genesis, you know what um, Joseph says to his brothers? You didn't send me to Egypt. You didn't sell me into slavery. God did it. God did it. Underneath it all, God was at work. So you may feel like you're in the pit and God's nowhere to be found. But he's always at work. Sometimes people say, but I don't know what he's doing. Who cares? That's not the big issue. The issue is, does he know what he's doing? I'm going to bring my car to a mechanic tomorrow, really and truly, at an auto place. And if I stood there the entire time they were working on my car, not for one moment would I know what they were doing, right? I could sit there and say, I don't know what you're doing. But who cares whether I know what they're doing? The main thing is that they know what they're doing. God knows what he's doing. And God is always at work. The question is, will we trust him or will we forfeit that trust? Um, your child has a brain tumor. You're 35 and you're not married. The doctor says they can't find a heartbeat for your unborn child. Trust him. Trust him. God's purpose is not to prevent ill from falling you. His purpose is to get you into his family and to get you to the feast. So there's a young girl in Maryland. She's popular. Most popular girl in our class, homecoming queen, cheerleader. She dives into a lake. She breaks her neck. His name is Johnny. Her name is Johnny Erickson. And uh, she's not a Christian. Family are not Christians. 
Now she's paralyzed. She's a quadriplegic. She's a teenager. She's a quadriplegic. She's paralyzed. She has a 16-year-old paper boy who's a Christian. And when he comes by our house, he goes inside and he chats with her. And um, then kind of comes the moment of truth. Johnny says to this young man, I hear you're big into the Bible. Tell me, do you think God had anything to do with my breaking my neck? Oh, great. When you're a pastor for 30 years, you quiver uh, under that question, right? Do you think God had anything to do with my baby dying? Do you think God had anything to do with my son's car wreck? 16 years old. He said, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a paper boy. I'm sitting across from the most popular girl in this huge high school. I know what the Bible says about her question, but I've never test-driven these truths on such a difficult course. Nothing worse than a D in algebra has ever happened to me. But I think if the Bible can't work in this girl's life, it never was for real. So I clear my throat and I answer. God put you in that chair, Johnny. I don't know why, but if you'll trust him instead of fighting him, you'll find out why. If not in this life, then in the next. He let you break your neck because he loves you. And Johnny Erickson was converted. And she and this boy met for months and months and months and read the Bible as he taught her theology. And she has changed the world for handicapped people all over our world for the last 50 years. God knows what he's about. Be still and know that I am God. So in the eye of the storm, God's people know their father is at work to get them to the feast. So in conclusion, how do we get to the feast? How do we get in this family? Jonah's a sign of how losers like us can, can actually be in the family and be at the feast. Joseph is sold into slavery. I told you to get him to Egypt to save God's people and to save you. But that's just a sign pointing down the road, isn't it? The Bible story has motion. Everything's moving, right? Because another son is coming. And this son is the favorite of his father. At his baptism, his father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This son also came unto his own, but his own received him not. He was betrayed by his brethren, he was betrayed by one of his inner circle closest to him. They sold this son for silver too. They handed him, just like Joseph, they handed him over to the Gentiles. They stripped him of his clothing and they abandoned him to die. And he cried out and no one answered him. No one, not even God. God's providence was at work to ensure that Joseph would live and God's providence was at work to ensure that God's son would die. Jesus was stripped of his father's love so that you might wear the coat of the father's favor. The coat of the father's love was torn off of him and it was given to you.
That's how you get in the feast. I love this poem. I don't know if I love it. I, I'm moved by it. Older than eternity, this is the words of Mary, older than eternity, now he is new. Now native to earth as I am, nailed to my poor planet, caught that I might be free. Blind in my womb to know my darkness ended, brought to this birth for me to be newborn and for him to see me mended. I must see him torn. What's Christmas about? It's about God becoming very small. It's about Jesus being torn so that you might have the Father's love, that you might have a family, that you might have a place at the feast. Are you in the family? Are you headed to the feast? It's the only thing that matters. Amen. Jesus, right now, if there's people in this room and you love them, Would you pour out your grace on them even right now so that they could tear off the clothing of their good works and their virtue and all the things they think would make you right, make them right with you, that your gospel might tear off that clothing, that they might be clothed with your righteousness and your love, that they might trust in nothing but you and what you've done for them. Father, people in this room, wouldn't it be awesome if nobody walked out of this room that wasn't in your family headed to the feast? If right now you don't know that you belong to God, I just invite you to say, um, even as I invited you to pray at the beginning of this message, God, speak to me. To just say to God right now, I don't even know what it means, but I want to belong to you. I want your forgiveness. I want your love. I want to be your child. I want to be in your family. I want you to be my dad. I want to go to the feast. Say those words from your weak, trembling heart, and your life will never be the same. God, do it this Christmas, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.